Well, I'm excited to be here this morning. I'm batting for pitching. I guess pitching relief. Pitching relief for Greg. Um, it was an honor when he asked me to, to do this. And honestly, he specifically asked for this message. The, uh, right when we were getting ready to leave LifeSpring, for those of you that don't know us, uh, my wife and I were here for five, six years, six years or so. And uh, experienced what I would consider to be the most exponential phase of spiritual growth we had with this body. And we were so grateful to have been here. And right after we left, um, I felt like God had asked me to be studying this. He'd, he'd put this topic on my mind and he had said, okay, I want you to write a sermon on this. And I was like, well, God, that's, that's, uh, that's silly because I'm, I'm not going to LifeSpring anymore. So I don't know when I'm going to, I don't know when I'm going to teach it. And he said, well, just write it anyway, even if it's never taught. And so I wrote this sermon a while back. Um, wrote this concept a while back, and then Greg called, and he said, hey, man, it's time. I want you to preach that message. So I honestly believe that God has ordained this message for exactly today, um, that it's meant to be spoken here, that it goes much beyond what Greg or I could have imagined, and that he's ordained this. So I'm excited to teach it. The name of the sermon is Fear Factor. And I was going to put together slides, and then I was like, ah, Nate's getting married on Saturday, and if he's at church on Sunday, we have bigger problems. And so to just simplify things, <laughs> just for the sake of simplification, I, I didn't put together slides today so that everyone can just kind of be present um, and really, really uh, just experience this together in the same way. So um, fear, right? Fear is defined uh, by Webster's Dictionary as an unpleasant emotion caused by the belief that someone or something is dangerous, likely to cause pain or threatening. When it's used as a verb, it means to be afraid of someone or something as likely to be dangerous, painful, or threatening. So when I stop and I think about fear for myself, I know that it exists in me, but I'm not sure when it was born there, like when it, when it came into my heart, when I started to recognize it. And although we don't really know when this happens in life, we do, in fact, allow fear to actually come into our hearts, to take up residence there, right? And we allow it to stay. And what's even more interesting is that over time, we actually allow that same fear to begin to shape us, to begin to shape the behavior that we have, to begin to posture us uh, to the thing that we actually fear. I fear bears, and so I have a very healthy respect for bears. I will posture myself in a certain way before bears, right? It begins to, like, shape us. And the fact is that it's probably an evolutionary trait, right? This is what some scientists think. They say, like, okay, well, People that were scared of bears survived bears, and their fear of bears was passed to the next generation so that they would fear bears, and so then they would continue to survive. So in some uh, capacity, the idea of fear is an evolutionary trait that sort of speaks to natural selection, that strong genes and strong fears maybe persist over time. So the thing is, if you go to the Bible, and you try to figure out what is a biblical concept of fear? What does the Bible say that we should actually be afraid of, that we should actually fear? You're going to find one reoccurring theme. And that theme is that we should fear God. Now, I've been thinking about this recently. And I've been reading a lot of stuff on this. And I've been asking myself this question. Like, do I actually fear the Lord? Do I actually fear God? Or maybe even have I ever feared God? So I decided to see how deep the rabbit hole went. Uh, I started digging deeper and digging deeper. And what I found was that if you look for this specific phrase or concept within Scripture, you'll find it 144 times from Genesis to Revelation. 144 times the fear of the Lord is discussed. And so given the fact that it's used that 
frequently, it can't be sort of brushed aside as something that's maybe not as important as some of the other biblical truths, right? Like, we have to look it in the eyes, we have to face it head on, and we have to know it for what it is. And I think when I first thought of fear of the Lord, when I was first sort of started thinking about the concept, I thought, well, this is, that's an Old Testament thing, right? Like, the God of the Old Testament was a God that was to be feared, but we have Jesus. We have this intercessor, this mediator, right? And so since I have a Savior that cleanses me of all my sins, I don't actually need to fear God anymore, right? We spend so much time sitting on this righteousness of Christ, which we should, don't get me wrong, but we spend so much time focusing on the righteousness of Christ and how we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ that I think sometimes we can tend to put the fear of the Lord aside, right? So then the other question that I found myself asking was, if my identity is found in Jesus... Is God still to be feared? So, in order to really look at this, I think we got to look at some biblical examples, right? We got to look at fearing the Lord and maybe the posture that some of these biblical figures have taken over time when they've actually encountered God. So, the first uh, that's sort of noticeable or notable is in Genesis 3. So, Adam at this point is naked, uh, clothed in poisonous fig plants. Solid work, Adam. And he is, uh, he's hiding in the bushes and God comes strolling through the garden and he says, where are you? Adam says, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. He was afraid of God, the very first man after the fall, immediately after the fall, the first emotion that he experiences is fear of the Lord. He was afraid of God and maybe afraid of what God's response might be to his sin. So then if we fast forward 65 books later in the Bible, right, to the book of Revelation, in uh, Revelation, John is having an encounter with God, and in Revelation 1.17, it says that he fell at his feet although dead, as though dead. Paints a pretty clear picture of what he thought in that moment. And what I think is interesting about this is that we have John here, right? So even with John's recognition of the gospel, even with his recognition of the Savior and of his own, um, the Savior's atonement for, for his sin, he still perceived this fear of the Lord. He still crumbled at the feet of God, right? And so I think it shows us that he had a very real fear of God, and so this can't just be an Old Testament thing. Because it exists even after the gospel. It exists in John, who was physically there, listening to Jesus, being with Jesus. So then if the fear of the Lord, if it's not an Old Testament thing, right? Like if, if, it's, if we can't just brush it under the rug in our 21st century faith, then what we have to have is a working understanding of what's actually meant by this term. We can't just ignore it. It shows up 144 times. I have to face it head on. So here's the reality. The reality is that it's the fear of the Lord is the beginning of any sort of recognition of or relationship with God. It's the beginning. It's the foundation. We see this consistently in Proverbs and Psalms. So in Psalm 111, verse 10, it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. In Proverbs 1.7, it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. In Proverbs 9, verse 10, it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the, knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So clearly a theme here, right? So this is of the utmost importance, this idea of fearing the Lord, because if we lack 
any understanding or wisdom or knowledge, or if we lack any true recognition of or relationship with God until we have established a healthy fear of the Lord, then we cannot push this idea aside. It's the beginning. So to push it aside would be to bypass the absolute foundation of our faith. So if fearing the Lord is the beginning, we should start at the beginning. And as I've spent more time wrestling with this idea, it hasn't frankly been an easy concept for me to grasp. It's come up over and over in my study and more generally in life. And so as I've asked myself this question, do I fear God? Like, have I ever feared God? The reality is, many of you know this, but I was raised in a Christian home. I was raised Presbyterian in this little small town in Montana. I was exposed to the gospel all throughout my childhood. But still, even with that, I have this question. Have I, have I neglected to acknowledge the fear that the Lord commands? And here's the thing, is when I trace my, my salvation back, when I trace this all back to the beginning, what I really come to is that I think I, I recognize my need for a Savior more out of a fear of godlessness or out of a fear of hell, honestly, than out of a fear of the Lord, out of recognition of fear of the Lord. And if I look a little deeper, I think that why I, why I think this is because I generally tend to fear things that I believe hold power over me, right? And if that's true, then the first question that we have to ask as we sort of address this idea of fear of the Lord is, why is the Lord to be feared in the first place? What power does he hold over us, maybe is another way to look at it. So given the context of this conversation, uh, what I want to do is just use a little bit of mental imagery. So if you guys would close your eyes, I just want you to imagine for a minute. Everybody has a little bit different vision sort of of what this might look like. But I want you to imagine for a minute that you're standing in front of God. That it's the day of judgment. And as you're conjuring this up in your mind, what I want you to do is whether, whether this is true for you or whether it, it's not at this point in time, I want you to imagine that you are not clothed in the righteousness of Christ. So what you have is you have you, you have God, and you have all of your life to account for. I want you to ask yourself a series of questions in that. The first is, what is your posture like? in this scenario? How are you physically holding your body in this scenario? What's his posture like? I'm curious, uh, in the picture, is God the same size as you? Do you size him up as sort of an equal? Do you feel like you hold any power at all as you stand there in front of him? And what kind of emotions is that dredging up in that moment? I think this is interesting, and you can open your eyes. I think that this is a sobering reality for me because it makes me, well, first off, it makes me praise God for the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? Amen. Second is that it, help, it helps me, as I was thinking about this concept, it helped me really grasp the gravity of that scenario. And so I asked myself the question, well, who am I standing in front of? And in order to answer that, there's only one place that we really should go, and that's to his word, right? And let's take some look, take a deep look at what God says about himself. Who is this God that we're standing in front of? Okay, so I have a lot of scriptures here, so let's all center ourselves. We're going to track with Ryan through all of these scriptures. 
So the first thing God says about himself, well, it's not the first thing, but the first thing that I have noted is that he is omnipresent, which means that he is everywhere at the same time. One definition says that he is widely and consistently encountered in everything. Jeremiah 23, 24 says, I am a God who is near, declares the Lord, and not a God far off. Can a man hide himself in hiding places where I do not see him? Rhetorical question. Do I not fill the heavens and the earth, declares the Lord? Colossians 1.17, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Psalm 139, where can I go from your spirit? Oh, I love this. Where can I go from your spirit, or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. He's everywhere, all at the same time. He is omniscient, meaning that he knows everything. He is all-knowing. Isaiah 40, 28 says, Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary, and his understanding is unsearchable. Psalm 147, 4 and 5 says, He determines the number of stars. He gives to all of them their names. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond all measure. Romans 11, 33 through 36. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom of the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how unscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? For who has given him a gift that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Next quality, next characteristic. He is omnipotent, meaning he has unlimited power. He is able to do anything that he sees fit. The first thing I think we have to point to is the idea that in Genesis, he actually speaks all of creation into existence. He doesn't lift a finger. He merely speaks everything you see, every leaf that's changing on the trees has been spoken into existence by God. On a grander scale, every galaxy, every universe, every star has been spoken into existence by God. Psalm 33, 6 says, By the word of the Lord, heavens were made, their starry hosts by the breath of his mouth. Isaiah 44, 24 says, This is what the Lord says, your Redeemer, who formed you in the womb. I am the Lord, the maker of all things, who stretched out the heavens, who spreads out the earth by myself. Luke 1.37, for nothing will be impossible with God. He is all-powerful. He is omnipotent. Jeremiah, 20, or Jeremiah 32.27, behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? He's sovereign, meaning he's the supreme ruler. He has ultimate power over everything. Isaiah 46, 9 through 10 says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and the ancient times things, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Proverbs 19, 21. Many are the plans of the, in the mind of man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Psalm 135.6, whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth. 
in the seas and all deeps. The last one I'm pointing out is the fact that he is just. He loves justice. He will be the judge, and he will decide what is considered right or fair in the end. Psalm 37, 27 through 29 says, Turn away from evil and do good. So shall you dwell forever, for the Lord loves justice. He will not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever. But the children of the wicked shall be cut off. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. Hebrews 10.30 For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. Psalm 50, verse 6 The heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. So if you look at this, the 66 books of the Bible that we have, they point to a God that is everywhere, that knows everything, that is all-powerful, that is sovereign, and that is just. Not just in the New Testament, not just in the Old Testament, but all throughout the Bible, and moreover, all throughout creation, right? He tells us through his actions, through his words, through the words of those that pen the scriptures, and simply through the things that he have, he's made. And if you look closely, all of creation, it screams of this brilliant, powerful creator. A God whose vastness and power, try though we might, we'll never totally understand until the day of judgment, until we stand before him. Yet there's this shift that I've sort of already talked about. At times, I think that since we're under the new covenant, we can tend to make God out to be a little bit of a softy, right? Like he's sniffling into a tissue up in heaven, biting his fingernails. Oh, is Ryan going to accept my forgiveness? Right? We paint this picture of him, I think, sometimes where maybe he's the fearful one. Fearful that we're not going to accept the things that he's offered to us. Fearful that we may not believe in him. But the reality is that he himself is not fearful. But rather he is worthy to be feared. Now yes, it is true that by him were extended grace and mercy and forgiveness and salvation and access back to him and righteousness through Jesus Christ. Therefore, without a foundation of fearing the Lord in the first place, we can tend to take these more gentle qualities of God and allow them to paint a picture of him that's smaller and weaker than what he actually deserves. And I have to wonder if this is because, if there's some cultural context here, like we don't look at someone who's merciful and forgiving and gentle and soft. We don't look at them and say like, wow, that guy is fearful. I'm really scared of that guy. They don't, that, that kind of a person doesn't give us a sense of danger, pain, or threat, right? Like the definition would imply. And here's the thing, is that I think that as I thought about this, I thought, you know, the problem is that I think that I try to allocate fear. I try to say, like, God, I'll give you a little bit of fear. Like somehow the fear or the power or the reverence is mine to give in the first place. But what we have to remember is that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and understanding. It was there all along. He commands that fear, and he has, and he will command it. He commanded it before the earth was whispered into existence, and he will command it on, until that very last day, and then on. So when we stop for a minute, right, and we accept and we acknowledge that among other things, God, our God, is omnipresent, he is omniscient, he is omnipotent, he is sovereign, and he is just. He knows all, sees all, is ruler over all. 
He is everywhere all at once. He is the Alpha. He is the Omega. He is the beginning and he is the end. He spoke earth into existence. He fashioned man in his own likeness out of dirt, which he also created. That our God that we worship this morning, that we worship right now, is the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He's the God of the Old Testament. He's the God of the New Testament. And that one day, when he brings this whole thing to completion, we'll stand before that God and, and be judged, having to account for ourselves and account for our lives. Because he and he alone reigns supreme. He and he alone is the keeper of our eternities. So when we recognize all these things, how can we possibly conclude anything other than the fact that he is huge, a huge, powerful, eternal God, and he is absolutely to be feared? So as we embrace this, as we look at the power and the might and the strength and the eternal nature of God, as we stop, I just keep coming back to this because I just think if we stop for one second and realize that the ground we stand on was created by this God, how could we possibly stand before him in his mental image and think he's the same size as us? How could we possibly say, God, I don't, I'm not afraid of you? When we embrace the fear, what it does is it sets us rightly, uh, or it, it sets our minds right before him It makes him incredibly big, incredibly bigger than our minds can comprehend, and it makes us incredibly small in relation. In other words, I believe that it correctly postures us before the Lord. It paints a picture that the all-knowing, all-powerful, just, righteous God could speak the life out of me just as quickly as he spoke it into me. That he doesn't have to play by the laws of nature because he created the laws of nature. He can take everything in a way, away in a moment, and I believe that this should breed a real recognition of the power and size of God in relation to that of us. And this recognition can and should only produce fear in us. The fear is not only healthy, but it's necessary. It's the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of understanding. It's so necessary that it was present in Adam the moment of the fall. It was present in John in Revelation, and it will be present in the last man on this planet. So, okay, well, that's kind of, that's kind of like a little bit depressing and dark, Ryan, because you're painting this picture of this big God that could sort of smother me out with his thumb at any minute, right? But the question is, is how does this translate into the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ? How do we view a fear of the Lord in the light of the gospel? How does it mesh with Jesus? Well, this was a tough one. But man, God has like really done some work to solidify this in my mind because what we see is that this same big, powerful God that in a moment's notice could take away all that he's given, that with one word could choose to end all of creation, that is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the Alpha and the Omega, that God, that same God, chose to send his only son to walk perfectly, sinless, on this planet for 33 years and then die the most painful and brutal death imaginable. Why? In order that our sins would be forgiven in order that we would be granted access back to the Father in the first place, that we would be able to live in eternity 
live for eternity in the presence of God, worshiping him. So first, knowing who God is and why he is to be feared is fundamental in our ability to grasp the weight of what that gospel means. If God is this like sniffling softy in heaven, right? Then maybe the good news of Jesus is a little less good, frankly. But if God is the all-powerful, all-present, everywhere, sovereign, just God of the universe, then the gospel of Jesus Christ becomes an incredible gospel. It makes good news good news, right? The gospel, God, the word gospel means good news, which implies that when we're given good news, we were sort of in a state of bad news beforehand. If we don't believe all the previously discussed qualities of God, all the big qualities of God, then it's hard to believe that he's big and that we're small and that he is to be feared, it's easy for us to think that maybe we're not in need of saving. Or maybe even worse, that he's not the one capable of saving us. At best, maybe we would recognize our own depravity, but without a fear of the Lord, we aren't quite sure he's big enough or capable enough to deliver on his promises. And even with an understanding of Christ, even with us being fully founded, fully centered in the gospel, without a fear of the Lord, we might rejoice because we have eternity in heaven, But we would miss the best part, which is that we'll have eternity in heaven worshiping and praising God for all of eternity, right? Heaven's not the prize. Eternity with God is the prize. Either way, without a fear of the Lord first, without this reality being the beginning of our wisdom and our understanding, then the good news of Christ is a little less good. God's mercy is a little less merciful. His grace, a little less graceful. His forgiveness, less forgiving. His righteousness, not quite as righteous. An inadequate fear of the Lord demonstrates an inadequate understanding of who he is as ruler and king, which will dull the reality of who he is as father and savior. Let me say that again. An An inadequate fear of the Lord demonstrates an inadequate understanding of who he is as ruler and king, which will dull the reality of who he is as father and savior. So how does the fear of the Lord work in the light of the gospel? Well, the fear of the Lord makes the gospel the gospel. The fear of the Lord makes good news good news. Possessing a fear of the Lord and the gospel of Jesus Christ are not mutually exclusive. It's not like an Old Testament, New Testament kind of thing. They're woven together, they go hand in hand, they complement each other, and they give us a full view of God as both powerful, mighty creator of the universe and caring, merciful, and loving father. The God of the universe, who is my Abba, who is my daddy. Frankly, it's always been the plan. If you read the word, you see this, right? It's beautiful, um, and it's, it's totally complete. So when we have, number one, both an adequate understanding of the power and size and might of God, and two, when we posture ourselves rightly before him, and three, when we couple this with the grace, mercy, and forgiveness found only in his son, then the thought of the fear of the Lord begins to shift into more what I believe the actual intent of the word is here. Without the gospel, the fear may represent terror, right? And on the other side, with an inadequate understanding of God's supremacy, then the fear is probably a little too subdued, a little too passive. But when we see and understand and believe both in his strength and in his gentleness, it produces a sense of awe 
and reverence and respect for the Lord. We can both marvel at the power and might that he has and be eternally grateful that he doesn't pour it out on us at every moment of every day. As I was thinking through this concept, um, I thought of this illustration that helps me really, helps me understand it. I hope it'll help you. I grew up in Montana, um, as I mentioned, and I went to school on the western side of the, the state in Missoula, and I grew up on the eastern side of the state in this little tiny, like, podunk honky town. Uh, and I would drive from Missoula to Coal Strip frequently, so drive all the way from the west side of Montana all the way to the east side frequently. And right in the middle of the state, there's this city called Livingston. And Livingston is nothing special, maybe like 10,000 people. It sits right, on, right where the Great Plains meet the Rocky Mountains. So if you can kind of imagine, as you're going west-east, you come out of this big mountain pass, the Bozeman Pass, and then all of a sudden it opens up into Great Plains and it's just like wheat fields, nothing. And my dad grew up there, and what I can remember him always talking about was how the wind blew all the time. Because the natural environment, it, it allowed for the perfect scenario for this. The wind would like blow across the Great Plains, hit the Rocky Mountains, go up and then swirl and just do this big swirl. It was, it was brutal. And I can remember it'd be all calm and like snow falling straight down and you'd get on the other side of the Bozeman Pass and it would be snowing sideways and cars would be getting pushed off the road and it was crazy. But what's funny is as I, rem as I think back on this, being a 19-year-old college student in my Honda driving from across the state, usually way too late in really bad weather, what I don't remember all that well is the wind. But what I do remember is the windmills. So south of town, um, south of Livingston, there were these big wheat fields. And in these wheat fields, there were these huge, like probably 50-foot windmills. I don't, maybe bigger. I don't know. They'd stood there for as long as I can remember, since, at least since I was a kid. Uh, their blades would churn really snow, slow, not like really fast windmills, but they had this big, slow churn to them. Because what they were doing was they were taking the same wind that was whipping across the plains and pushing cars off of the road, and they were using it to perform the exact function that they were intended to perform. They were able to take this power present in their environment that like violently whipped around them, and they were able to channel it to create energy and light. Without the wind, with, without this power to begin with, then the windmills would have been motionless. They would have stood there for as long as they would have been allowed to stand, never really living up to their original design. They'd have been fruitless, right? Likewise, without the windmills, then the, the environment would never really have been able to harness the power of this wind, and the wind would have just poured its wrath out on the community constantly, down in trees and power lines and pushing cars off the road. The wind, if left to its own accord, if left to itself, it would always have been something to be feared with terror rather than with awe and with reverence. But when the wind and the windmills were paired together, then the power is not only acknowledged, right, but it's respected and it changes something that could have perpetually brought terror into something that's fruitful and meaningful. And when you think about it, whether the windmills are there or not, the wind would have always been there. The power is the same. But when the windmills are present, then the windmill becomes the object of the wind's wrath and the city becomes a city of light. It's crazy similar to the gospel. It's crazy similar to this idea of fearing the Lord, right? The power, the might, 
the fear of God, it's been whipping around us in our, our environment for as long as, as the earth has been, you know, created. It's been pouring out wrath. It's been inspiring fear. It's all around us. It's seen in all of creation. Seen in Adam, seen in John, seen in people today. In Luke 19.40, Jesus tells a group of Pharisees that if the crowd of disciples were to stop praising God, that even the stones would cry out. See, even the rocks on the ground fear the Lord. And the reality is that we were once the objects of this wrath. We were huddled down, hanging on for dear life, our cars being pushed off the road, right? We were fearful. We were desperately wanting to believe that God was merciful and gracious and forgiving. Yet most of these qualities were hard to see through all of the power and might swirling around us. And this is what makes the gospel so beautiful. This is what makes the good news good news. Is because when Jesus became the object of that wrath, our fear was able to shift from a fear of terror and uncertainty to a fear of awe, reverence, and respect. Jesus satisfied the wrath that we were due in order that we might experience light. in order that we might be able to tap into a power that is totally supernatural. So it would be impossible for us to sit here and say that somehow the gospel makes fearing the Lord a little less important. Because the fear is unchanged. The fear is the same from the beginning. It's our response to the fear that's a little bit different. And yeah, someday we probably will still fall at his feet and sob. But it's going to be because we were clothed in the righteousness of Christ, right? Not out of a fear of recognition of all of his might and wrath that's about to be poured out on us, but out of recognition for a love of a God of the universe that would care enough about me to send his own son to die. So it's no wonder why John in Revelation, even with his acknowledgement of the gospel and and his knowing Jesus, it's no wonder that he fell at God's feet because what he fell at God's feet for, why he crumbled as though he was dead, was because he knew just how big God was. And he knew what God was capable of. And he knew just how small he was. And he knew what he would never be capable of. But all of that considered, he knew that a Savior had given him access. He knew that the God of the universe cared so intimately for him that he would allow his son to die in order that John would be brought home. How could he not be in awe? How could his response have been any different in that moment? I can't think of a way. So if we know what fearing the Lord means, and if we know why God is to be feared, and if we know how we should view that fear in the light of the gospel, then there's really only one more thing that we have to look at, and that is what a fear of the Lord might produce, right? If it says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, well then, like, what comes next? What do the scriptures tell us are the products of fearing the Lord? Now, this really blew my mind, right? This really left me awed because when we approach the throne with a correct posture, right, we posture ourselves rightly before our God, then the response that he pours out in return is, like, unfathomable. It's crazy. 
So what I want to do is I want to look at a few of these together, right? I want to, I want to look at a few of the, the products of fearing the Lord together. But rather than like unpacking them one by one, then we'd be here till like 4.30. I think uh, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to give it to you and I'm going to give you the, the product and I'm going to give you the scripture that I think supports it, right? Just so that we might sit in this, so we might just meditate on this for a second and realize that fearing the Lord is in fact the very beginning, that none of these products can be produced aside from that. So here they go. The first product is wisdom, right? We've already talked about this a little bit. But Psalm 86, verse 11 says, Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. The second product is repentance. Proverbs 16, verse 6 says, By steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for. By the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. Life. Proverbs 14, 27 says, The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life, that one may turn away from the snares of death. Mercy. Luke 1, 50 says, And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Confidence. Proverbs 14, 26 says, In the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence, and his children will have a refuge. Satisfaction. Psalm 145, 49 says, He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. Holiness. 2 Corinthians 7, 1 says, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of the body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of the Lord. Provision. Psalm 39, or Psalm 34, verse 9. This is my favorite. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. Protection. Proverbs 19.23 says, The fear of the Lord leads to life, and whoever has it rests satisfied. They will not be visited by harm. This was the one I thought was the most just sort of outlandish. Uh, Psalm 25.14 is about friendship. It says, The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. And he makes known to them his covenant. Wisdom, repentance, understanding, life, mercy, confidence, satisfaction, holiness, provision, protection, and friendship. Everything we need to survive, everything we need for life is found at its beginning in a fear of the Lord. So after we think about all this, after we answer all these questions, what is it that we walk away with? What's the big idea? Well, first I hope you'll hear me say that God is absolutely to be feared. He's worthy of awe, of reverence, and of respect. He's worthy of reverence for what he's capable of, for his might, his strength, his sovereignty, his wisdom, his justice, but also for his love and for his mercy and for his forgiveness and for his grace and for his kindness. So I hope that this week, I hope that you'll ask yourselves this question. I hope you'll ask each other this question. I hope you'll meditate on this. Do I really fear the Lord? What does that mean for me? How does my fear shift in the light of the gospel? Fear of the Lord is fundamental and foundational to our faith in him and salvation in his son. It's the origin of understanding. It's the origin of wisdom. 
It produces in us, an, it produces in us a posture as we approach the God, Almighty God, as we recognize the access we've been given, and as we stand before him on the, on the day of judgment, fear of the Lord will produce that posture. And the word says that on that day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Whether one's salvation has been secured through the blood of Christ or whether they're going to spend eternity separated from God, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess because the Lord is to be feared. There'll be no denying it in that day. So whether we choose to believe it for ourselves or not, the Lord is all around us. He's present in all of creation. And if every last human was quiet, then the rocks would cry out. Then these changing leaves on the trees would cry out. Then the red tundra at the tops of the mountains would cry out. And lastly, this fear is not fruitless. It's not just merely an emotion that we feel and say, okay, God, I'm fearful or I'm awed. But rather, it's the source of everything that we need. It's the source of wisdom, of repentance, of life, of the ability to receive mercy, of confidence, satisfaction, holiness, provision, protection, friendship, among others. 144 references. It's crazy. I was reminded this week also that uh, in John 6, Jesus says, no one comes to me unless he's first called by the Father. The Father calls us to the Son, right? The wind calls us to the windmill. That we might be able to actually experience him in the way that he wants us to experience him. In the way as close to the original design as possible. And so what I want to do, uh, I asked Greg this week if we could take communion together. Because I think that this concept is just incredibly demonstrated in Jesus' words about taking communion. And so what I want to do is I'm going to ask the band to come back up and play a song. Um, we're going to get the elements handed out, hold them, and then once everybody has them, uh, we'll take them all together.